Hey everybody, and welcome to Wednesday night. Uh, man, we're busy around here. Uh, you may know that Cindy and I are moving to another house. Uh, we're getting much closer to the church and moving. Let me tell you, I hate moving. And um, that's why I haven't moved in 28 years. I've been in the same house 28 years and it's paid for. So the good thing about that is I get to sell it and put all of the equity into um a new house. But anyway, that's not Bible study, but I'm just sort of, it's, things have been a whirlwind. And um, so it's always so neat to me to be able to come to you with the word of God, because the word of God comforts me. And uh, just, uh, it's therapeutic for me to minister the word of God to people. Uh, you know, it pulls you out of yourself, pulls you out of your own stuff, and it gets your eyes on others. And uh, I believe tonight, we're going to have a great time looking at two questions Jesus asked. And you may be saying, Jeff, how long are we going to be on these questions? Well, Jesus asked a bunch. Now, I'm going to throw this out. Tonight may very well be the last night of questions Jesus asked. We'll see. But these are two great ones. Uh, they really spoke to me uh, getting ready to minister it to you. And so um, here we go. Now, remember... Uh, isn't it amazing that Jesus, who was God the Son, uh, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Trinity, and um, Jesus being God asked us humans questions. Now remember, when Jesus asked a question, he didn't need an answer from us. His question was always designed to make us think about something that we would not normally think about, or really to cause us to come to God, to bring us to himself, uh, because his questions always led to a great realization, some powerful truth that is a life-changing truth. So he looked at different people throughout his ministry of, you know, roughly three and a half years. He looked at different people and from time to time, he would just zing them with a question. And the question was a life changer. So tonight we're going to look at two of them. The first one is a great one. It's found in Luke chapter 12, verse 56. And I encourage you to grab your Bible, turn there with me, uh, because uh, I, I want this to be a Bible study. I want our church family to open up that Bible and study verses together. And let's break open the bread of life. And uh, so Luke chapter 12, verse 56, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. And here we go. Jesus said, how is it you do not discern this time? Another way to put it, how is it you're not discerning the times you're living in? Now, I've shared with you throughout this series that there is a context for every verse in the Bible. And the three laws of Bible interpretation are these, context, context, context. Uh, something came before the verse, something comes after the verse. And it saves you from misinterpreting a verse or misapplying a verse or creating a doctrine out of a verse uh, if you get the context. So, because context matters. Uh, in seminary, we learn a text without a context is a pretext. So our text is, how is it you do not discern this time? Luke 12, 56. 
But the context uh, is very interesting. Now, I want to read the context to you, mainly what led up to Jesus' question. So I'm going to be reading, jumping back to verse 49. So if you will please turn to Luke 12, verse 49, and get a marker, get a pen, get something to write with, because you need to take notes, because paper never forgets. Amen? So here's verse 49. Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Verse 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it's accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Now there's another great question. I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father, verse 53, will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, we're about to see that his question, that what we just read leads up to Jesus' eventual question. This is a very important context. Notice, he's letting us know, if you think that me coming to the earth is going to bring peace to the earth, you've got it wrong. Now, let's be clear. He brings peace to your soul when you accept him as your, as your savior. But he didn't bring peace to the earth because the gospel is divisive. Okay? The gospel is a stumbling block. And that's what Jesus is telling us. And so keep that in mind as we go to verse 54, because he's going to jump from talking about the conflict and the division his gospel brings into his whole discussion about being able to discern the times. So jumping uh, to next uh, to verse 54, it says, then. So now it's connecting what he just said to what we're about to read. Then. He also said to the multitudes. Now that matters because I believe what we just read, Jesus was saying to his disciples, but now he's turning and he's facing the vast multitudes that followed him. And he says this, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the West, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it is. Verse 55 and when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Then verse 56, here comes the question. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it, here's the question, how is it you do not discern this time? All right, so we know that these passages are divided into two topics. If you take everything we just read, First part and second part, it's two topics. The disunity and the trouble the coming gospel of Christ would bring and the crowd's inability to understand or discern what God was doing through Christ in their time, in their life. So let's look at the first part first. The gospel would bring trouble. Have you discovered that yet? I did early on in my Christian walk. You know, I thought when I got saved and, and got filled with the Holy Spirit and 
was really turned on to Jesus, I thought that my family would be thrilled. Now you need to know that my family was very secular. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't raised in a religious home. I was raised in a secular home. My father was an intellectual. Uh, he was a member of the Genius Club, um, where you have, have to have an IQ at a certain level to even get in it. My dad was in it. So I had this intellectual, very cerebral father. And my mother was raised on a farm. Um, she was a raised with a real strong work ethic. Uh, I think she had like eight or nine siblings, some crazy number of brothers and sisters. And, um, but she was also a voracious reader and she wasn't raised in Christianity. So uh, our home was very secular, raised in evolution. You know, we all came from apes and all this other stuff. So when I went to my family after being saved, thinking, man, they're going to be thrilled that Jeff, who's been involved in drugs and been in juvenile home and been in all this trouble, man, they're going to be thrilled that I've found Jesus, that I've got religion, that, you know, I've got this incredible answer and that it has totally cleaned me up. But they were anything but thrilled. No, no, no. When I went and shared the gospel with my family, um, let's just put it this way. I was hit with questions. I was hit with intellectual questions from my father. Uh, you know, Jeff, um, what about this? What about that? How can you say that everything was created? Uh, it clearly wasn't. We came from evolution and evolutionary process. My mother thought that it was some phase I was going through. Uh, they made fun of me. Uh, I, they were anything but thrilled. And I found out what Jesus was telling uh, the disciples in our text. He said, look, the gospel is going to bring trouble, not peace, a sword of separation. He literally says, I came to send fire on the earth. Well, you read that and you go, well, this doesn't sound good. No, it's not good. It's, it's not an easy thing to read because the fire is not the fire of the Holy Spirit that they experienced at Pentecost. It's not the tongues of fire that sat on their heads and they spoke in other tongues and, and um, they were filled with the power of God. No, no, that's not the fire he's talking about. And it's not the fire of the zeal we see resting on the disciples all through the book of Acts. Even Jesus said, the fire, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. So zeal is kind of a, a, a spiritual fire, but that's not what he's talking about either. Uh-uh. Here's what fire it is. It's the fire of judgment, of persecution, of division, and of trouble. How's that for a blessing tonight? It makes you want to be a Christian, right? But no, here's the deal. Jesus said, I came to bring fire. My gospel the message of the gospel, you must repent, you must turn from your sin, you must be born again. If you don't, you're going to a devil's hell. Only if you turn to me will you be saved and experience eternal life. There's no in-between, there's no middle road, there's no uh, sitting on the fence, nothing, no. You're in sin, you must be saved. Some people were gonna stumble over that, get angry over that, reject it, and, and respond in hostility and ostracism and mockery and ridicule and others are going to respond 
in faith and be saved. It's like Paul said, Christians are a savor of death unto death for those who don't receive the gospel and a savor or a fragrance of life unto life for those who do. So we see that from the moment the disciples were filled with the spirit and began preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, the fire that Jesus talked about was released. Persecution raged. Martyrdoms began to take place. Families were separated. Trouble literally exploded. The disciples were whipped, imprisoned, ostracized, killed, uh, slandered, mocked, ridiculed, you name it. The fire Jesus came to bring to the earth, they experienced it. The battle between good and evil, light and dark, Satan and God exploded after Jesus was hung on the cross, buried, resurrected, ascended back to heaven, and the Holy Spirit fell. And when the Holy Spirit fell and the disciples went out and began to do the work of the ministry, the fire that Jesus said he had come to bring to the earth was released. In verses 51 to 53, the Lord predicts to his disciples particularly, and we need to take note of this, what I was just talking about, the separation and the hardship that would come to domestic relationships due to some in the family turning to Christ and others rejecting Christ. Jesus said, you're going to have a family of five. Three are not going to receive me and two are. And because you got two saved people in the home and three that are not saved, it's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause division. It's going to bring that fire to that family. And it did with me, be honest with you, to this day, um, there's still a couple of people in my family who don't walk with the Lord. If I bring it up, uh, it's a source of division. I have found his words to be absolutely true. And maybe you have. Uh, it's a tough thing, for instance, if you're married. And let's say you get married with both of you lost. And one of you comes to Christ and the other one doesn't. Uh, that's difficult. Because lots of times, not all, not all the time, but lots of times, the one who doesn't come to Christ... Uh, mocks and ridicules, makes fun of um, the one who has come to Christ. Um, when the Christian now that's in the marriage wants to go to church, the lost person doesn't. And, and, and it's very hard to walk together when one is a believer and one isn't. And that's why the Bible says so clearly, if you're a believer, never, never marry an unbeliever. Because you want to be able to share your faith. You want to be able to pray together, study the Bible together, share the things of God together. But Jesus said, three are going to be against two, two are going to be against three, and that house is going to be divided. Fire, the fire I came to bring to the earth. Trouble, division, betrayals. He even said in Matthew 24, when he was describing what was going to happen before he returned, he said, father is going to betray son. Mother is going to betray daughter. When the persecution thermometer, when the persecution meter rises and persecution is red hot, that family members were literally going to betray one another. I believe, folks, that in America, that's right, America, we may be headed to a time like that. So it's going to be tough on relationships, 
family relationships, domestic relationships, close friendship relationships, you name it, Christ is going to bring a sore division. And that's something that the true believer has got to be ready for and embrace when it comes and choose Christ over an earthly person. We must love him more than father, more than mother, more than son or daughter. And Jesus said, if you don't do that, you can't be my disciple. Now, next is from this vantage point that Jesus turns to the vast crowd following him and chastises them for not discerning the times and what is about to go down prophetically and spiritually all around them. They, they know how to tell what the weather's going to do, but they don't have a clue about the, the spiritual season that their generation is in. They don't have a clue. Now, some commentators believe that Jesus talks to the crowd this way, and he turns from his disciples and turns to the crowd and really just chastens them. Now, some commentators believe that he did that because he noticed that as he told his disciples about what the gospel was going to cause, the pain and the division, that the crowd was very sarah about what they were hearing. They were numb. They, they didn't have a, oh my gosh, response, okay? So Jesus turns and chastens them because he can tell, you're not understanding what I'm describing. You have no idea what's about to go down. You're clueless. You're dumb and dumber about what is going on spiritually amongst yourselves in your nation, amongst your people, the Jewish people, you are clueless what God is doing in your day. And he uses a natural illustration, which Jesus always did. The illustration of first century weather forecasting and to make his point. And in those days, the way they would forecast the weather is they knew that a dark cloud rising in the West uh, was a good predictor of coming rain, okay? And they also knew that when a south wind blew, a real strong south wind, hot weather was on the way. So they could judge, not like today's meteorologists, but they, this is meteorology of that day was basically, you know, licking your finger and putting it up in the, in the air and which way is the wind blowing and is it a southern wind, a northern wind and what do the clouds look like? And they forecasted pretty accurately what the weather was going to do. But Jesus said, look at you, you can forecast the weather. You can discern what the weather is going to do, but you're totally blind to what is happening around you on the spiritual plane. You're blind. And this bothered Jesus. And it was bothered him enough to bring a rebuke to them. They did not discern the spiritual gravity of the time they were living in, nor the crisis that they were fast approaching. Because he had told them elsewhere in Luke 19, verses 43 to 44, here's what Jesus said. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, and they will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place, talking about the temple coming down. Now look what he says here at the end. Because you did not recognize when God visited you. And catch that. What a price they pay 
for not recognizing when God visited them. Now, what was Jesus talking about? God had visited them in the most powerful visitation in history. He had visited them in the person of his only begotten son. It was his only begotten son, God in flesh, that was looking them in the eyeball and saying to them, the Roman army is going to surround your city one day. They're going to level you to the ground. They're going to crush you. They're going to destroy your temple. They're going to scatter those that live and survive it to the four corners of the earth. And you're going to be a scattered people for 20 centuries. Why? Because you didn't recognize when God visited you. In other words, you didn't discern the time. See, folks, this is so true, uh, not just a national level, but a personal level. I can tell you, when I heard the gospel, sitting in juvenile detention center as a 16-year-old boy, I'd never heard it, never in my life, raised in a secular home. I'd never heard, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I'd never heard it. And when I heard it, it, it just, something just reached out and grabbed my heart and squeezed it and said to me, Jeff, you're hearing the truth. This is not religion. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. You're hearing the truth. And if you'll come to me, I'll change you and save you. If you don't respond to me, the track you've been on, you're going to continue on that track and you're going to be destroyed. Because already I was in jail as a 16-year-old boy. I heard it. Now, I knew that I was in a moment of decision. I knew that what I was hearing and what I was sensing was God coming to me with an offer. And I had the uncanny sense, don't ask me how, except by the Holy Spirit, that if I didn't respond to this visitation, then I was going to pay a high price. And that's what happened here with the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They didn't realize the day of their visitation. See, when God visits and knocks, when he comes knocking, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you hear his voice, but you've got to open the door. I will come into him and sup with him, that is fellowship with him, enter into relationship with him and he with me. But if you don't open the door, then you miss the visitation of God. And I've never seen anybody, not in my whole life, who turned God away, that they didn't travel down the road of destruction and pay a high price and all kinds of pain because they didn't respond in the day of their visitation. What a powerful passage. Look at the catastrophe that came upon them. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, uh, really the destruction of the Jewish, the, their homeland. They lost it all because they didn't discern the times. And so Jesus says to them, how is it you do not discern this time. His point is, it ought to be clear to you. You, the Jewish people, amongst all people, should know the scriptures well enough to recognize that I'm the predicted Messiah. You've read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You know what all the prophets have said about me. You know that they said that the Messiah would heal the sick and raise the dead and open blind eyes 
and cause the dumb to speak and all that you've seen me do. You, you, you know what they, they predicted. Of all the people who ought to know, who ought to discern what God is doing, who I am, it ought to be you. But you're blind to the times. Well, you know what? The answer to Jesus' question is simple. Let me just give you my answer. And I believe the Bible's answer to his simple question. Think with me. We too are living in perilous times, difficult days when prophecy is being fulfilled all around us. Are you aware of that? Are you discerning the times? Rather than being caught off guard like they were and just continuing down the road blind as a bat to spiritual things, we should know the word and discern the times we're in. What times are we in? He is near at the very door. We need to be ready. We are living in the last days leading up to the second coming of Christ. The Lord is saying, you better have oil in your lamp. You better be walking closely with me. You ought to be letting your light shine. You ought to be living in earnest expectation that I'm about to return. And if that's where your faith is and where your walk is, then you are discerning the times. And so what a great question from Jesus. I want you to meditate on that. Really think about that and uh, chew on it because it's a great, great question. And I don't want to be like the Jewish people where I want to be. I want to be, um, I want to be ready for the return of the Lord. Amen. All right. Let's look at the second question of the night. Great question. It's found in Mark chapter eight, verse 12. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, Mark chapter eight, verse 12. Here's Jesus asking a question. Why does this generation seek a sign? Why does this generation seek a sign? Now, the context for this intriguing question, I think, is just after a confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus, as he's always having to mess with these people, the Pharisees were always dogging him, always stalking him, really, always on his trail, always trying to catch him in some kind of a verbal trap. They, they were just relentless in trying to bring Jesus down. Really obnoxious people. But uh, in verse 11, the verse just before verse 12, we see that the Pharisees came out. This is what it says, verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, sign in the Greek language meant a miracle. They wanted to see a supernatural miracle. Now, we should know here that the Pharisees did not believe that he was the Messiah. They just didn't. So they're, they're goading him like they always did uh, to prove, they, they want him to prove by showing some miraculous, indisputable, irrefutable, stupendous, out of the park miracle. Uh, they're saying, do a miracle for us, Jesus, uh, you know, it's almost like he's in a circus and they're saying, jump through these hoops for us. And if you do jump through the hoops, then maybe we'll believe in you. Maybe we'll trust you. Maybe we'll believe what you're saying. But they didn't really have any intention of believing in him. They hated him. And they were always looking for a way to not only bring him down, but to take him out. 
but they had already seen him perform all kinds of signs. So it was a crazy request. This is Mark chapter eight. So if you back up and read through the first seven chapters, you'll see he's already healed lepers. He's already cast out demons. He's, he's already healed a man's withered hand. He's already healed the woman with the flow of the issue of blood who touched the hem of his garment. Uh, he's already done many, many miracles with the Pharisees watching with their own eyes what he was doing. So this, this thing about do a miracle for us, Jesus jumped through these hoops. It's pretense. They, they don't really mean it. They're just bugging him. They're hounding him. That's all. They didn't really want to sign. They, they were being obstinate, giving him a, just trying to ruin his day. It's not that the Pharisees couldn't believe. It's that they wouldn't believe. We note that Jesus did not answer their request because it wasn't brought in faith. Now, here's, an, here's a, a teachable moment in looking at this question of Jesus. Why are you seeking a sign? Um, the way they asked him for a sign was in all the wrong ways. They didn't ask in faith. And the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews eleven six. Now, we know what Jesus said in other verses. Uh, be, be it unto you according to your faith. Your faith has made you whole. Uh, Jesus taught us over and over again that God responds to faith. He responds in faith. When we pray in faith, when we believe in faith, when we move forward in faith, um, not presumptuous faith, not foolish faith, not stupid faith, but biblical faith based on the promises of God, then that is what moves the hand of God. God responds to faith, okay? Um, he doesn't respond to obstinacy. He doesn't respond to um, just uh, heckling or uh, anything like that. He doesn't respond to flesh, but he responds to faith. So they come to him and they're goading him. They have no intention of truly praying in faith. And so they say, give us a sign, jump through these hoops. And Jesus sensed their real attitude. And he responded, the Bible says, with a deep sigh. I love the word of God. The word of God does not waste a word. Now watch this. I'm quoting the verse. But he, Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, here's the question, why does this generation seek a sign? His heart was so vexed, so grieved at their unbelief, so affected by their hypocrisy and their wickedness. Now, the word spirit here, um, pneuma is the Greek word, and and it refers to the seat of the emotions. It, it's, it's the core of you, the passions and the, the affections that you hold in your heart. Have you ever been deeply heartbroken? And if you have, and you probably have, if you're an adult watching, then I guarantee you, you've been heartbroken at least once in your life. Do you remember how all-encompassing it was? How it seemed to reach out and touch every fiber of your being, every atom of your body and soul, uh, all of you. Um, that's why I said Sunday in my message, I said, I'd almost rather be hurt somewhere in my body 
that have a broken heart because like if you hurt your hand, your hand hurts and uh, yeah, you know, your whole body is affected because you're focused on your hand, but your whole body's not hurting, just your hand. But your heart broken, it seems like your whole being feels it because it's your spirit. It's your inner man and it has reached to the core of you. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. He's he, he's hearing, he's sensing their goading, their mockery, their unbelief, their wickedness, their evil. And just their spirit has reached in to his spirit and just hurt him. So he groans deeply in his inner man. Our Lord was deeply troubled and vexed. And you know, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe Jesus is today grieved over some of the things people are doing. He hurts in heaven. He feels our pain. He empathizes and sympathizes. The Bible says we don't have a high priest that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but he is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. When we're heartbroken, he feels it. His heart goes out to us. He, he's moved, he's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. When we sin as his children, the Bible says it grieves the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is God the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit feels grieving. The Holy Spirit feels joy. The Holy Spirit is said to rejoice in the Bible. The Holy Spirit gives peace. The Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit can actually uh, um, have righteous anger. Uh, the Holy Spirit has a whole, a whole uh, list of emotions that are revealed in the Bible. And Jesus as well. He was touched by them in a very deep and, and a negative way. So he tells them in a very strongly emphatic manner, surely I say to you, no sign is going to be given to this generation. Now in Matthew's account of this very same event, one thing is added by Matthew that Mark did not put in there. And that is no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Matthew adds that about Jonah, and Mark did not include that about Jonah. So we're getting a little more insight into what Jesus said to them. Now, this reference to Jonah's three-day stay at what I will call the, the whale holiday inn, where he uh, was running from God and swallowed by a great fish, and he stayed in that whale holiday inn for three miserable days and nights, only to be coughed up and spewed out on the seashore on the third day, that's a type of Jesus being buried for three days and three nights, then resurrected to walk out of the tomb alive and well. So Jesus said, Jonah and his time in the belly of the great fish was an Old Testament type and shadow foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and his death and burial in the ground in the tomb, excuse me, for three days and three nights. So Jesus' answer to their question is simple. Why does this generation seek a sign? The generation that seeks a sign is the generation that doesn't believe the claims of the gospel and have refused to repent based on the Jesus presented to them. That's the whole message of the question. What generation seeks a sign? 
Well, the generation that's just like these Pharisees. We've heard the message of Christ. We've heard the gospel. That's not good enough for us. We want to see a sign. And we might just believe if you give us a sign, God. But the bottom line is this. The Bible is very clear. Miracles don't lead to salvation many times. Many times. Look at all the miracles that God did for the people of Israel in the wilderness and yet they continued in unbelief. Miracle after miracle, water out of the rock, cloud by day, fire by night, uh, healing from the snake bites. I mean, you name it, all kinds of miracles. And yet their hearts remain hard. The Pharisees saw miracle after miracle, yet they never came to Christ. Miracles don't always save at all. There's only one thing that will save. And this is what Jesus was driving at. Here it is. It's found in Romans 10, 9 through 13. I'm going to read it in closing. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, the generation that seeks a sign, uh, the only sign they're going to get is when it is preached to them that I was raised from the dead. All right. And that's what the Pharisees got. They didn't get a sign performed by Jesus just for them. He didn't jump through the hoops just for them. No, but they would all come to see that Jesus, once he was buried, rose from the dead. The sign of the prophet Jonah. But by and large, folks, you know, when was I saved? Not when I saw a miracle. I was saved when I heard the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Whoever is saved is going to be saved when they hear that gospel. They might see a thousand miracles, but they'll be saved when they respond to the gospel. And that's the answer to the question. Well, I hope that you enjoy our two questions tonight. I know I did. And uh, listen, I want to once again, as we're closing, thank all of you who have so faithfully tithed and given during this very, very difficult year for not just our church, but all churches. And yet, you know what? Here's a praise report. And then to me, this is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's provision. We haven't been late on a single bill. As a matter of fact, we've actually been able to give more to missions than we did before COVID hit. We gave more to helping children, uh, giving them shoes, giving them coats, feeding them every day. We were able to give more to missions <clears throat> since COVID struck in March of 2020 than we gave uh, the year preceding that. Isn't that a miracle? That's amazing. And so I want to thank you. I want to thank you because, you know, without you, we couldn't be reaching uh, so many uh, every day on national radio already today while you're watching this. We've already reached tens of thousands of people across America by Life Talk on radio, not just on Christian Satellite Network, but we broadcast into the Philippines uh, we, have, we broadcast on two radio stations in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, we're all over the United States. 
And that's because your giving makes it possible. Not to mention, we're able to minister to you <clears throat> week in and week out in a beautiful building, a beautiful sanctuary, because you have been faithful. So I want to encourage you to remember, it says, we also remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Because I assure you, when you give into your church home, Turning Point, people are hearing the word of God all over the country. They're hearing the word of God in our own home church. People are being set free and delivered and healed. Celebrate recovery, ministry to youth, ministry to children, uh, ministry to seniors. I could go on and on. Ministry to marriages. Uh, the number of ministries happening in our church are voluminous. And it's because you gave. So just a reminder, you can give by texting. And that's the way I give. Here's the number. 817-617-4378. You just put that in, text it. And a little thing will come up and you just type in the amount you want to give and hit send. It's the way I give every time. That's simple. It's so easy. It's so much easier than writing a check. All right. So 817-617-4378. You can give online by going to our website, tpcfamily.org. That's tpc, Turning Point Church, family.org and click on give or you can you can give by mailing. You want to do snail mail? That's fine with us. Uh, just send it to 10700 Old Burleson Road, uh, zip code 76140. That's 10700 Old Burleson Road, uh, zip code 76140. Thank you so much for remembering us. And we love you. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you this Sunday. We have been having some great church. Our altar in both services has been filled with worshipers. It's been a beautiful sight. God's been moving. So I want to encourage you, be sure you come. If you possibly can, let's return to the house of God and trust God. If you feel better with a mask on, wear a mask. That's fine. Nobody's going to think a thing. We'd love to have you. So until Sunday, God bless you. We love you. Have a blessed week.